0: Amen. Amen. Won't you stand with me as we read the scripture? Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 130. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're looking, say, still looking. All right. It's mostly everybody. My son was having a good time in worship as well. Backflipping out of my arms in some kind of miraculous way without falling on the floor, but uh, yeah. Psalm 130, I'll begin reading, and if you don't have it, it's on the screen on the sides of me here. It says this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? From all his iniquities. I want you to turn to the person next to you to help me announce this topic and say, Neighbor, "Neighbor." today we're going to talk about about a lifeline in a sea of trouble. trouble. Turn to the person on the other side and say, Neighbor, "Neighbor." are you in that sea of trouble? trouble? Take your seat. That's my part. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, We thank you so much for this opportunity, this moment that we have in time and space where you speak to your people. So, Lord, I'm asking that you speak. I'm asking that you would take your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, to let it cut going in and coming out. I pray, Lord, that you would do a few things, that you would convict people who already know you to draw nearer to you in obedience and faith. Then I pray, Lord, for people who don't know you that may be here, that that at the conclusion of this, they would place full faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would let me decrease so that you might increase. Hide me behind the cross of Christ, Lord. Uh, Let your face shine as a result of this, not me, not any church, but that Jesus would be seen. Give me words to say. Give me boldness to say it. Give us hearts that are receptive to what you say and feet to walk in obedience, Lord. We need you at this moment. It's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Amen. So it happens the morning of May 26, 2013 that the A.H.T. Johnskin 4 was tugging its way off the coast of Nigeria in the Atlantic Ocean. When Harrison O'Keefe was going about his regular morning routine, some people in the room are going to understand this routine. It's when a certain time when the clock turns at a certain point, your bladder wakes you up out the middle of your sleep and makes you go to the bathroom to answer nature when it calls. Harrison O'Keefe was going about his morning routine that he did every single morning. But what he did not know was that this morning would be unlike any of the mornings that he had seen before. And as he goes into this restroom, this bathroom, what is believed to have been a sudden ocean swell, a, a white squall, a, a mega wave, hits this tugboat and capsizes it. Harrison O'Keen, as he's in the bathroom, is thrown from the very rest restroom that he's in. He is thrown out of it. He is slammed into the walls, down the hall, back and forth, to and fro, as the water comes over the bows and begins to fill the rooms and begins to fill the halls and the space. And he is taken back into the bathroom that he was kicked out of. And as this tugboat would make its way 100 feet down to the ocean floor, finding its resting place, Harrison O'Keen would find a lifeline in a restroom, that he would have 60 hours of air to breathe. Can you see him in this room? As he hears no one to help him, all he can hear is the sound of the ocean brushing past the boat, no one to answer his calls, no one to knock on the door, no one to say, we'll be there momentarily, Harrison. Hold on for dear life. A sudden storm that he was not looking for has capsized his life. And this pocket of air is his lifeline. Have you ever felt like Harrison before? I'm talking about when life takes a sudden turn and doesn't give you a preemptive warning that it's going to do it. But it takes a sudden turn where all of a sudden stability becomes instability. And security becomes insecurity and places where you found comfort no longer are comfortable for you. It's when life is turned upside down and you are tested to your very limits and you are tried to the very fibers of who you are. It's when faith becomes real. The moments where you don't see coming, the moments where you don't even think you can be prepared for. It is when life hits you at your moment's weakness, when you least expect it. Harrison O'Kane. One thing you got to understand about problems and seas of trouble and trials like this is that all of them are perfective in nature. James chapter one verses two to four says this, consider it a joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance has this perfect result so that you may be Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Simply put, all trials happen to shape you into the image of Christ. It is intended to test your faith to a place of deeper trust and reliance upon Jesus Christ. But there are trials that have a different element in them, a different component that takes it just up a notch. These are corrective trials. These are trials that take place in your life that are meant to get you back on track. These are trials that the Lord throws at you, tailor made for you with your name on it that he throws to say you have veered to the left or to the right. And I'm throwing this to catch your attention. This is when the Lord tells you to exit a relationship and you say, I shan't be lonely, but I'll stay in it and he throws a storm your direction. This is when the Lord knocks on the doors of your heart and tells you to follow him in a call that he's throwing on your life and you say fear will keep me captive and he throws a storm at your life to correct you. It is when the Lord is challenging you in your soul to say yes and no to some things but yet you say yes and no to the wrong things and he heaps trials to correct you, to tell you that you are off course, to aim your target this way. It's an act of love. But no matter how much we know that it's an act of love, these things never feel good, truth be told. Trials, whether we get them through life, whether it's just the fact that we live and trials find you. Sometimes life is just hard. That don't feel good. But when the Lord has taken his proverbial belt out with your name on it, you know how your mama had the one with your name etched on it. You and your brother them and your name was etched on it. And God pulls that belt out for you. Even then, knowing that it's an act of love, it still doesn't. Feel good. So what do we do? I believe this this text is going to tell us this. That when you are sinking in a sea of trouble, trouble that you've caused, call on the Lord to be your lifeline. That's so interesting. It, It means that when you find yourself in an ocean that has come for you, when you find yourself in a trial that is corrective for your life, It's all intended to make you call on the Lord to be the lifeline. But in order to do that, there's one thing you got to know. You need to call on the Lord from desperation. This is what the psalmist says. He begins by saying, out of the depths have I Cried to you, O Lord. Whenever you read depth, sometimes you can think that maybe he's talking about from the inward part of me, from the deeper recesses of my soul. But the Hebrew people who would have heard this would have understood that whenever a writer is using the idea of depth, he is thinking about water. Whenever he's talking about out of the depths, he is thinking about water that has lost its calmness but has become chaotic. The psalmist would have been saying, It is in this place of chaos that has come for me because of me in this place I call to the Lord let me just say this here it doesn't matter how far you've gone down your path no matter how far you've dug yourself into your own mess you always have a moment to be able to call on the Lord it's interesting that the psalmist says it's on the Lord I call he says on the Lord he says I call to you out of this depth O Lord Notice that all of the letters are capped in that, simply meaning he's coming and he's calling him Yahweh. That's just, you can miss the significance of that, When you understand that that's the name that God revealed to the people of Israel to say that I have yoked myself in a relationship with you. I have made myself available to you and I have promised my commitment to you in spite of you. Therefore, when you have made a mess of yourself like you will do, you can call on me. Some people need to be reminded that God through Jesus Christ has tied himself to you and you have gotten yourself in some mess that you have caused. But God is not a God. God, who has walked away from you but yet through Jesus Christ he beckons and says answer the call and call to me in your distress Psalmist says it's in these depths of chaos in this trouble that I have caused for myself in this deep place of pain that has my name on it I call to you O Yahweh then he says here Lord master hear my voice Let your ears be attentive to me, to the voice of my supplications, or your translation may say "Your my pleas of mercy. He says, pay attention to what I'm saying. When when I call to you, don't ignore me. Don't be petty like me. You know how you are. All it takes is for somebody to offend you one time and you see them on the side of the road with a flat. You're going to act like you got a text and you're going to keep going. You know that cousin who ain't paid you back last time? They call you and ask you for money. You're going to act like that you ain't see their message and you're going to keep on going. He says, God, don't do like I do. But rather, when I call to you in the mess I've made, when I call to you in the drama I have created, pay attention to my cries. Pay attention to my pleas. There is a sense of desperation in his call. There is, a, there is a part of him that is saying, Lord, I have reached my end. And you have met me in this. I have nowhere to turn, no one to answer the call, no one to help me, no friend to be with me, no church that'll let me in. Lord, help me. I'm at the moment of death. And it's in this place of trouble I call. I used to enjoy when I worked at my college, Trinity, every year we would do a retreat at this place called Camp Green Lake some kind of way, my coworkers and superiors found some devilish way to deceive me into getting onto a boat. I don't do that water ministry. You ain't, God ain't gonna teach me no lessons on no water. He could teach me on solid ground, and I can lay on the ground and repair. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody got no time for that water ministry. But some kind of way, they were used of the devil to tempt me to get on this boat and to get out on this water. I ain't the only one up in here. Some of y'all know who I'm talking about. You know that's you too. So we, I'm on this boat. It's a massive lake. lake was huge. And I remember we're tugging out. Not tugging, but, you know, kind of, you know, a little thing on the back. We get out into the middle of this water. Now I remember as soon as we left the dock, we could see a little bit of the seaweed. And, I, you know, I was praying in all kind of languages. Lord, keep this boat afloat, Jesus. I give you my life, Lord. Any sin I've committed, I repent right now. Jesus, give me the water. I'll baptize myself. Um, but I could see the seaweed. As we would go out further, the seaweed would disappear because the water was deeper. But some kind of way, we would arrive at this midpoint of this lake that had a sandbar. It's interesting here. This really messed up my understanding of life. How you can be in the middle of a deep lake, but yet come across a sandbar. And I would see people get out of their boats and stand in water in the middle of this lake that comes up to their waist. I remember seeing a father and his son in this water the father says to his son he says son now you need to stay in my reach you know how parents say don't leave out my reach stay in my reach i need to be able to grab you because the sandbar is not stable you know how it is with kids or you know how it is with us no always for some reason translates in our mind like yes you know how you got friends that may speak different languages on facebook you can press c translation and find out what they're saying no always means yes in your head Uh, with my kids no means yes don't means do so the son hears this and translates this in his head and he begins to move further away from his father and his father begins to move closer to him and he says son don't go any further I'm telling you it's going to be dangerous and the son just continued to mosey on about his way father got busy and next thing you know the boy begins float he began to quickly realize that the water had lifted him up and his feet are no longer stable on the ground. It's at the moment when he began to gasp and reach for ground that his legs would not dig into the sand because he was far away from the sandbar. He was at a point of desperation where he could not fight to bring himself back, but he needed to call on someone more superior to help. Let me talk to you for a second. God will not always toil with you. God will not always fight with you, but. Some Sometimes God will let you drift far enough so that you come to a place where you say, I cannot save myself, Father. In desperation, I call out to your name. And some of us are sitting in situations right now where we have drifted and the Lord has allowed drama to come your way where people don't want to be with you to teach you what God is saying. Some of us have messed up relationships in disobedience and God has allowed you to go there to bring you to the place of saying, I'm desperate and I need your help God nobody else can save me I can't hear what they're saying my friends are not my friends to help me but only you God have the ability the psalmist is saying that in those moments of chaotic storms you call on the Lord in desperation but not only do you call on him on desperation but you approach him from humiliation look here continuing on in verse 3 the psalmist says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities. Now, iniquities means to twist, to bend, to pervert, to infract. But, but don't get westernized on just thinking this here. Iniquity in the mind of a Hebrew actually covered a lot. Whenever the term iniquity was used, the person was nine times out of ten talking about the infraction, the perversion, the act. But then he's also talking about the guilt that comes as a result of the act. But not only is there guilt that comes as a result of the act, but there is punishment that comes from the guilt. The psalmist is saying, if you were to mark all of that, I might only see one right now. But he says this, he says, if you were to mark iniquities, plural, he says, if you were to take tally. You know how you put the lines and you put the one across to make five? He says, if you were to keep score on my infractions and the guilt associated, he says, oh, Lord, who could stand? Note how the reality of sin has humiliated him. He says, I know that I have committed an iniquity, that I am guilty right here. But if you were to add up the things I don't even know, I could never even have a, a right to call your name. I, I remember one day I was upset at the Lord and, and I was telling him one day, I said, Lord, how could you let these things in my life happen? And this is when we all get arrogant like this. Don't act like you ain't never said this to God. After all I've done for you, I've given you my life. I have given this. I pay my offering and my tithe in church. Nobody got to make me. I do it. I've been obedient to you. I have risked much for you. And you got the You don't say audacity, but you say, but yet you've allowed this to happen to me. And I remember as I uttered these words out of my mouth without being spooky, the Holy Ghost began to show me sins I committed the day before. And to say, why ain't you talking about how you looked out your window that day? Why why ain't you talking about how you were impatient with that person? Why ain't you talking about the finger you flipped at that car when he cut you off? Why ain't you talking about the stuff you don't want nobody to know about you, yet you got the audacity to talk about me? Here it is. God, sometimes when you come to him, will remind you of your sin and to say that if he was to track record your sin, I'm talking about the parts of you that you don't want nobody else to know, the part that sits behind the veneer that's staring at me now, the part that shows how ugly and how festering you are on the inside, the part of you that stinks, the part of you that's dirty. The psalmist says, if God were to mark these things, They would mount up like a tower in front of you and collapse. Psalmist is saying here, never ever think you can just come to God and think you're owed something. Don't ever approach the Lord and say, because I've placed my faith in Jesus, you owe me this. Because I've been obedient, you owe me this. Because understand, we're still nasty. And without the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us and even to vouch for us, we ain't got a name to stand on. But the name of Jesus Christ, he's Haunted by the reality of his sin, humiliation. But interesting here, he shows that God is not petty. He says this. They would stand, verse 4, while this is true, Lord, verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you. Note the preposition with. It's almost as if forgiveness sits simultaneously with God. He's saying, although you could have the right to count this against me, you really do. My sin was not against anyone else but you. You got the right to count this and the 17,000 ones I did in the hour against me. But rather with you, when I come to you, you don't make me do a dance. You don't make me jump through no hoops. You don't make me say a bunch of words 50 times. You don't make me. You just say with you, there is forgiveness. It's, it's almost like saying that when I know I've done wrong, when I know I've gone this far over, that all I got to do is come to you and there is forgiveness. Let me let me just say this here, that if you have caused some drama in your life because of sin and disobedience, the Lord is trying to bring you to the point of saying, I ain't mad at you. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness with God. Somebody is haunted with guilt and burdened with condemnation now because you know what you've done. And God is saying, come with me. There is forgiveness. But note the purpose of the forgiveness because in the next line he says that you may be feared. In other words, God does not just offer cheap forgiveness for cheap I'm sorry's. You know how we can be sometimes God if you get me out this trouble I promise you I'll be sorry God if you change this situation Lord I promise that I won't do it again when he knows the truth of the matter is you're counting and calculating on how you can do it next week. Here's the thing. God is saying, I throw this forgiveness that, you, that I might be field, feared. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. And I'm going to paraphrase, but I'm going to say something. This, is, God, this says that God requires his people to fear him, to love him, to serve him with all our hearts and with all our souls. There is free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But their forgiveness ain't just to be so we could carry on in sin. I, I hear Paul saying, Shall I carry on in sin that grace may abound? He, he almost gives the equivalent of a profanity word. He says, May it never be. I offer this forgiveness that I might be feared. In other words, with this forgiveness, there ought to be a sense of transformation. There ought to be a sense of saying, I'm at least going to try to be different from what I did before. I'm going to at least think for five minutes when I only thought for three last time. I'm going to at least try to say no when it comes my direction. He's saying, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Approaching the Lord in humiliation. But not only do you do that, but you must wait with expectation. Look at what the psalmist says here. He says... I hear you, son. Verse six. He says, I'm sorry, verse five. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. Soul being every ounce of me, the seat of my emotions, the, the whole person of me, he says, I wait on the Lord. He says, and in his word, I hope. Notice how many times he says, wait in that one line. Whenever you're reading Hebrew poetry, You pay attention to repetition because repetition implies emphasis. He says this. He says, it is on the Lord I wait. He says, and then my soul waits. He's saying that although I know that forgiveness is free, he's saying, I understand that deliverance comes slower. Jesus don't make you jump left and right for forgiveness. He offers it freely because of something that happened 2000 years ago. But sometimes you got to live with the drama you created. Sometimes you got to live with the spouse who don't trust you no more because of your sin. Sometimes you got to live with the job that wants to fire you. Sometimes you got to live with the drama because while forgiveness comes quick the deliverance comes slow. But what does the psalmist say? He says, although my situation that I've created has not changed and may not show any sign of changing, he says, I wait on the Lord. And it's not even a sense of just saying I sit down in my seat and play video games, but, but it's, a, it's an intentional waiting. It's a watching for the Lord. I, I wait to see his salvation from this. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He says, I wait with a sense of of expectation. But then look at how he goes further in this. In verse 6, he says, my soul waits for the Lord. He says, waits again. More than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. I love his poetic prose here, how how he says this thing twice to place the emphasis on how he waits. He says, like the watchman, I wait. I wait. You got to understand that these people understood the city they lived in. That these people understood that their city was surrounded by walls. And in order to protect their city from enemies, they had to place watchmen in towers that surrounded the city. And there was no scarier job than the job of a watchman. Why? Because the watchman literally sat and looked at the horizon for abnormalities that would pop up that would be humans. And when it got dark, there was a deep sense of fear that would set over the heart of the watchman. Because the threat would always come when you're least expecting it. So the watchman would watch. I can see him as he stares through the open bird, the bird hole of his watchtower, as he stares out into the horizon as far as his eyes can see. And he's praying that he doesn't see a person on the horizon. I can see them all with a sense of nervousness and expectation that the morning will come, but nervousness that it hasn't yet. As they're watching and they're waiting because they know that the morning's gonna come. How do they know? Because yesterday the morning came and the day before that the morning came and the day before that the morning came but they have no proof that it's coming. They're watching as the darkness gets thicker as they're waiting for the light to begin to pierce over the side. They're watching like the watchman. He's waiting with expectation that the sun is gonna come. Here's what the psalmist is saying, that when your situation don't change, there is a sense where you wait for the Lord even when you don't see him coming. There is a sense where you place your trust in him and your hope in him that the Lord who has the power to save you is the one who has the power to change the situation. But note that his hope is anchored in something. You go back up in the verse here, in verse 5, before he even talks about this watchman waiting, he says, and in his word, I hope yeah. it's interesting how biblically illiterate Christians can be, how the only intake of Bible that we get can be on Sunday morning at church or through a podcast, maybe. But we never pick it up throughout the week. It operates almost like a paperweight in our home. It operates like a book in a decorative book in at that if you've got a leather Bible. Or or it operates for some grandmothers as a nice showpiece on a on a fireplace mantle that collects dust. But yet we don't get in it. The the psalmist says that, yes, I watch like the watchman and yes, my soul waits. But it's only able to do that because it's anchored in something. And that is in his word. The word here used here is devar in Greek, which simply means the sayings of the Lord, the promises of the Lord. He says, "I, I, I anchor myself on what the Lord already said. I trust that he will save me because second Chronicles says that when his people humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and call on him, he will hear from heaven and heal their land. He understands Psalm 91, where it says, God will be with his man in trouble and he will deliver him. He understands Psalm 34:19, that the righteousness, righteous people face many troubles, but the Lord will deliver them from them all. In other words, he says, I have a word from the Lord that is based in something he said. That I anchor myself in. See, when you're not anchored in the scripture, you can be tossed to and fro. Your emotions can take you any which way you want to go. But when you understand what the Lord has actually promised you in Christ Jesus, it will make you watch and wait in expectation that the powerful God can change it. He says in his word, I hope. He calls on the Lord out of a sense of desperation. He approaches with humiliation and he waits on him with expectation. But finally, he trusts in the Lord for his redemption. Look at verse 7. He says, oh Israel, hope in the Lord. This is interesting here because it's almost like the poem has taken or the song has taken a turn. On one hand, he's giving a testimony for his life. How many of y'all ever been to a testimony service? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Google it. Testimony service happened back in the day. Sometimes it still happens. Sometimes it would be where that person who the pastor ain't never going to let preach, like try to preach their sermon. And then the pastor would have to get up and shut that ministry down and be like, you ain't preaching no sermons up here. And, you know, he'd be going long, almost expecting for somebody to get on the organ. And then like the pastor's like, you better not get on that organ. That, you know. But a good testimony service is when someone would testify about what God has done sometimes it was giving testimony about God meeting them in their sin sometimes it was giving testimony about God meeting them in their trouble but it was a testimony and 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 it generally never was intended to be self-aggrandizing it wasn't intended to promote self more than it was intended really to be a way of preaching to the people about the faithfulness of God That's what the psalmist is doing here. The psalmist writes this song of ascent that as they're going to worship the Lord, he is telling them, I've been there and I've seen the Lord answer me as I've waited on him and called on him in the trouble I created. But now he turns a corner and he says, the lesson I've learned from this, Israel, is for you to hope in the Lord. See, it's believed that this psalm was written in the post-exilic period in Israel's history. Don't get lost on the terminology. Let me tell you what I mean. God redeems his people Israel from slavery and says, now that I've done this, your job is to serve me with every ounce of your being. But just like us, just like them, they said, we're going to do it. And tomorrow they forgot. You know how that is. When God does something big in your life and he actually shows up and you can attest to it being him and tomorrow you act like you don't remember no more. That's what happened with the people of Israel. And God toiled and God was patient and God was forgiving. And finally, God said, I'm taking the belt out. You know, it's when God says, I'm going to warn you and I'm going to take this belt out. So now they're at a place where now they have been spanked by God. They have been taken out of their city into slavery. And you've got to get the significance of this. This is deeper even than people who have seen Detroit, who were Detroit residents, have seen Detroit take a tank or people from Camden who saw Camden take a tank. It's deeper than that. This city would have been surrounded by walls. They would have seen those walls be torn down. They would have seen the enemy come in and snatch them out in chains. They would have seen the temple where God said he himself would dwell amongst his people. They would see that temple burned down because God has turned his back on them. They witnessed this great sense of discipline And God, who is true to his word, redeems them when they repented. Now they are trailing back home to ruin. God has forgiven them that forgiveness was free. God has saved them and brought them home, but now they're spiritually forgiven, but they're dealing with the reality of broken down walls. They are spiritually forgiven, but they are still looking at a broken and burnt down temple. They they are spiritually forgiven. But they are also still seeing enemies around the corner who are threatening to take anything they grow. They they are spiritually forgiven, yet they face threat every day. And the psalmist says, I've been there, Israel, hope in the Lord. Why does he say hope? He answers it in these verses. He says, with the Lord, there is loving kindness. There's that with again. It's almost as if when you come to God, loving kindness sits by his side. He says, with the Lord, there is hesed. Don't get lost on the terminology. Loving kindness simply means it's an undying love. It's a love that is there in spite of you. It's a love that is faithful and committed to you, though you are unfaithful and lack commitment. It is a love that says, I am here and it has little, if anything, to do with you. It's a love. He says, with the Lord, there is loving kindness. There is what we get the New term, New Testament term, grace from he says there is grace with the lord that's why you hope on him but then he says on one hand there's loving kindness there's undying committed love for his people but on the other hand he says this there is with him abundant redemption redemption means simply to deliver it means simply to take from the bondage of he says with the lord there isn't just redemption but there's abundant redemption Don't go spiritual on me too quickly. What he's talking about here is he understands that humans are humans and humans are going to do what humans do, which will be sinners. He understands that humans are going to get themselves in mess. But because of the Lord's loving kindness, his grace, his undying commitment, his faithfulness on one hand, there will be on the other hand, power and abundant deliverance, meaning I'm able to change you a lot of times. He says that although this is messy, hope in him because on this side there is grace with one hand, there is the power to enact the grace on the other hand. On this hand, there is loving kindness that's not just a word that passes, but on this side, there is loving kindness in action. On one hand, there is loving kindness. On the other hand, it is redemption. And he's saying with both of these hands, Israel, the Lord will redeem his people from iniquities. How does the Lord do it? I love that the psalmist is pointing forward to an event that would happen 500 years later. Where in one hand of Jesus, there is loving kindness in this hand. And that hand would be stretched wide on a cross and pierced for us. But on the other hand, there is love in action. There is the abundant redemption. There is the redemption from your sin. There is the redemption from the continued mess that you get yourself into when that hand stretches wide. And Jesus, in his power, would take on our sin on his back. And die in our place and God would pour the punishment for us on his back so that when Jesus got up and you placed your faith in him there is a commitment that God will never leave you and with those two hands the Lord is able to love you but then he's able to actually help you what are you facing today where you're needing the Lord to one show you love but then you also need him to help you from your messy situation What situation is it that you're facing that your disobedience has conjured up from the dirt, that your disobedience has caused this to be? It is a result of you. And listen, understand this. Everything ain't that. I ain't saying that because you got sick. That's because of sin. But sometimes, you know, it's because of sin. Sometimes when that person break your heart after everybody told you not to date that person, everybody said it. Everybody said, child, I see him. He is a demon. And you said, but I love him. I see that God is with him and I'm going to help him know Jesus more. You know how Christians do. I'm going to help her know Jesus more. And that person breaks your heart and you're still grappling with the pain of what that person has done. What about when God has called you to move and you said, I won't move. And God says, I will move you. The drama that he has caused to push you out of your seat. What is it that you're facing that you need Jesus to actually change? Here's what the psalmist is going to tell us. That when we find ourselves in a sea of our trouble, call on the Lord to be the lifeline. I close with this story of Jonah. I like Jonah because Jonah is a moment of vulnerability here. I am Jonah. And you are too. Don't act like you're not. I can count numerous occasions in my life where God has said, do this. And I said, I shall not do this. I shan't do this. And if it wasn't for the fact that revealing that might, you know, people might actually know these situations, I ain't even going to say it. But it's interesting here. God calls Jonah. Interesting. And you have to understand that God knew Jonah was going to do what he did. God says to Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah said, no, I would rather see them burn in hell than to see them repent. Now, you got to understand why that's a big deal, because the people of Nineveh were were crazy. They were absolutely crazy. And the fact that they're still living in Jonah's mind means that they can come and burn me alive at the stake and watch me die from burning. That they can come and see me be skinned to death. And you want me to see them saved? (coughs) Jonah takes the first thing steaming out of Joppa to Tarshish. I wish you could see a map and understand that Nineveh was over here and Tarshish was over there. Jonah says, I'm not even going to go near it and act like I'm going to do it. I'm going to go that way. And as Jonah is on this voyage into the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, Jonah thinks he's safe and he has escaped God. Jonah takes a nap. A good old Baptist nap. You know, the nap you're going to take after church where you're going to be sleep so deep. Slob going to be all on your face. Breath going to be tough when you wake up. Baptist nap. That's what that's called. Jonah falls deep into a sleep because he thinks he has escaped God. And the text tells us that he hurls a storm at him. I wish you could see the Greek here, the Hebrew here. It literally means he took a spear and formed it to take aim and he said I know where Jonah is I've tailor-made this shot for him and as Jonah is going where he is God hurls a storm at him Jonah is waking up and they throw all the stuff out of the thing and he says oh my God what's going on you could see the waves this is why I don't do water you could see the waves (laughs) turning As the boat is flipping and the text tells us that it began to break apart where these experienced sailors were now afraid that they would perish. Jonah finally surrenders and says, throw me overboard. You get to Jonah chapter two where there is a prayer. And most of us think that that's that prayer of repentance, but it's actually not. That is a prayer of praise, praising God for the answer to a prayer he prayed between chapter one and chapter two. Jonah is in this water. The waters have calmed down. The boat has gone a different direction, and he's sinking. He can now see the seaweeds begin to grab his feet. He could see the base of mountains as he's going deeper down into the water. He's fighting to pull up as the currents are yanking him down the more he fights. And he comes to the point of saying, I can't fight no more. Jesus, help me. And somebody in this room today is at a place where God has turned it up in your life and you are close to the spot of saying, I can't fight no more. I've fought you on every end. I've said no to you on this end and on that end, but I've got no more fight left in me. You have created this drama for me. Here's the simple thing that he's saying, call on him. If you found yourself in drama you made, call on Jesus. If you find yourself in trouble that is tailor-made for you, call on Jesus. If you find yourself in chaos that has come for you, calamity that is named for you, call on him. That's what the psalmist is trying to say. And let Jesus be the lifeline in your sea of trouble. All heads about our lives are closed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for Jesus, the physical picture of your grace that uh, we can't save ourselves from so much stuff from anything but jesus has the love that ain't just love but he has deep commitment to us jesus you have in the other hand the ability to redeem us from the many messes we find ourselves in and i pray like the psalmist said that you would pull us from our mess we thank you in jesus name While our-